1 Corinthians chapter 14, and this morning we are continuing our study of 1 Corinthians, and we've been looking at this fascinating, confusing topic of the spiritual gifts in the church as we're moving toward Easter, and uh, we'll be studying the resurrection in chapter 15 right around Easter, so that's exciting. But we're finishing up chapter 14 this morning, so we're going to be looking at verses 26 to 40 in a moment. But first, a question, a very important question. How many of you have seen the movie Frozen? Yeah, okay, wow. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, Frozen. Yeah, for those of you who haven't, uh, it's okay. Uh, my family saw it again this weekend. Um, it's actually, it's, it's a Disney movie. It's animated. It's, it's actually a really good movie. Um, it was number three in the box office this last year of, um, in terms of movies that gross money. It was number three. Uh, it was nominated for two Academy Awards, won both of them one for best animated film and one for best original song, which you probably know the song is, Let It Go, right? Being sung by middle school choirs everywhere in the country now. Um, For those of you who haven't seen Frozen and uh, are not planning to rush out and see it, uh, it, it's a a fairy tale, and it's about this kingdom and these two daughters uh, of the king and queen who are both princesses, and the eldest daughter named Elsa has a magical gift. She can manipulate and create snow and ice. So she's kind of a, uh, a wizardess or something. She, she can control snow. She was just born that way. And uh, it's sort of a problem because her parents think that she could be potentially dangerous. Uh, she might freeze people accidentally. So they make her wear gloves so she can't use her frost powers. And they uh, sequester her in her room, and she grows up in isolation. She, she doesn't get to spend time with anyone else. And so it's part of the story is this, this barrier between these two sisters who long to have a relationship, but it's, you know, it's an emotional thing. Um, but anyway, uh, it, she, she grows older, and then one day it all snaps, and her secret comes out that she actually has this power. And so she leaves the kingdom, and she flees to the frozen tundra of the mountains, where she can finally just not have to be a danger to anyone, and she can be herself. And that's when she breaks into the song, Let It Go, you know, which I'm not going to sing. <laughs> disappointment, I know. Get used to disappointment. Uh, and she, she throws off her glove, and she starts singing, Let It Go. You know, I just want to let, let it all go. And uh, she sings, Let It Go, Let It Go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. And she sings the song of personal freedom from all this bondage she's been in. And I was thinking as I saw that movie, which is a good movie, I enjoyed the movie, not knocking the movie, but, but I thought as I, I listened to that song, I thought, you know, that, that song really could be the kind of hymn, hymn to our age hymn to our times. It's an anthem that fits the spirit of the times in which we live. Because ours is an age in which personal freedom, personal expression is one of the highest values that we hold. That above all the things you could do, the most important thing is to be yourself, express yourself, be true to yourself. Don't, don't hold anything back and, and what's bad is anything that would sort of stifle you or, or repress your individuality. And the most important thing we can all do is be true to our hearts and true to our destinies and not let anything hold us back. And the idea that you would somehow voluntarily limit yourself or 
repress yourself or not express yourself, it's like, why would you do that? That's terrible. Be true to yourself, our age would tell us. There's one line in the song particularly that uh, grabbed me. I'll read this one to you. She says, it's time to see what I can do as she makes an ice staircase, which is awesome. She's like, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's the spirit of our time. Nothing to hold me back, no rules, just me being me to the truest sense of that. And there's, there's just something about that that it seems to echo in this age so much with our hearts. Well, not only would that be the theme song of our age, I think it would also be the theme song for the church in Corinth. Let it go. Let it go. They had all these spiritual gifts in Corinth. We've been studying that in 1 Corinthians 14. And it seems to be the philosophy under which they were operating was kind of let it go. Hey, don't let anyone hold you back. This was a church obsessed with rights. This was a church obsessed with self-expression. They had spiritual gifts. They had powers that God had given them. They were speaking in tongues. They were prophesying all these things that we've been wrestling with as a church. You know, what does that mean exactly? We're not even 100% sure. But, but, but here, here's this message, you know, these Corinthians. Just let it go. When you get together in worship, just be yourself and let your gifts rip. <laughs> don't hold anything back. Certainly don't limit yourself in any way. And so Paul is speaking to this group, and, and he has a different message for them. It, it's a message not, not of let it go, nor is it a message of oppression. It's a message of love. That when we come together in worship, the most important thing isn't self-expression, but rather building up others in the congregation. It's, it's not about me expressing, but about you being edified and built up and encouraged. It's a different mentality than the Corinthians had and that we have. Um, j- just to look at Corinthians, if you look in your Bibles, we've been looking at chapter 12, just to kind of remind you where we've been the last three Sundays. Chapter 12, uh, Paul talks about how the spiritual gifts have been given to the church, and therefore we all need each other. There's no one in the in the membership of a church who isn't needed. We all have gifts and things to share. Because again, the point of the spiritual gifts is the building up of the congregation. Then in chapter 13, he talks about love and how love is even more important than the spiritual gifts. And if you have awesome spiritual gifts, but you have not love, you're nothing. In some ways, chapter 13 is is not only the, the centerpiece of this section on spiritual gifts, but it really is, I think, kind of the heart of the letter, this call to love. This is the thing the Corinthians didn't have. They didn't care for each other. And so all of their actions in the congregation were selfish rather than other-centered. Then in chapter 14, he starts to deal with this particular problem in Corinth, which it seems to be that they were kind of obsessed with speaking in tongues. And that was that particular church. So you go into that church, and the person who spoke in tongues the most was the most spiritual. And then Paul's saying, no, 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 prophecy is more important than tongues because, again, the goal is to build up others, not just express yourself and let it go. And so now he comes to chapter 14, verses 12 to 40, which is what we're going to look at today as we kind of close out this section of Corinthians and get ready for chapter 15 next week. But, but here Paul gets super practical. So verses 26 to 40, it's kind of like Paul has to break down, okay, look, you guys are having such a problem here with your church, so I'm just going to give you rules for how to do your church service. Like, 
You, you guys are so self, not you, the Corinthians. You're so selfish and messed up, and, and everyone's so about themselves that, that this is so hard for you. I'm just going to like break it down, and I'm going to give you some rules for what to do in the church service so that you can put these principles in practice. I, Paul didn't just leave it at, look, you guys need to be motivated by love. He had to get down into the nitty-gritty and say, okay, so when you come to church together, do this, do this, do this. This is what love looked like in action in this particular church in time. And so that's what we have here in chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. So uh, let, us, let me just read this section, and then um, we'll talk about what it means and wrestle through it, because there's some challenging little nuggets in this section. Let me read verses 26 to 40. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no, one interpreter, if there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For all you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirit of prophets is subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Just to answer the question in your mind, Jeremy, did you intentionally preach on this passage when a bunch of women were gone? <laughs> I did not plan it this way. This is the sovereign hand of God. <laughs> but unfortunately, I still see a lot of women here. So, <sighs> tough passage, huh? Tough passage. Well, let's, we're going to deal with it. We're going to look at what it means. Try to understand it. Um, let, let's start, though, with verse 26, which is really sets out the agenda for this chapter. What then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. All, this must, all these must be done for the strengthening of the church. So you get, it's kind of cool. You get a little snapshot here of what maybe a worship gathering or some worship gatherings might have looked like at this time. Right? So, so you have Christians coming together at some setting. We don't know exactly when, but they're coming together in an assembly. And, and it looked like a kind of a little more probably free-form setting than we're used to in, in our trip, typical experiences in kind of Western churches. You have something where people are bringing gifts or something to the table. Maybe someone has a hymn or someone has uh, something they want to say or an instruction from the scriptures that they have. But everyone's kind of bringing something that they want to share when in, or some people are bringing things they want to share when, when the people are gathered together to encourage each other. And some of those things might be a revelation or a speaking in tongues. So that's what was going on. Um, that, of course, is different than uh, what we experience on Sunday morning, isn't it? 
We are kind of more in a Western tradition. Really, in some ways, it goes back to the Jewish synagogue where there was, you know, sort of things were done orderly. And, but, but here's something different that's taking place. Uh, some of you may have come from churches where that was how Sunday morning worship looked like. There was just kind of an openness where people could stand up and say things. And, but, you know, here we are, the frozen chosen in New England. We're not quite really there. But even in our church, even in our church, which is fairly traditional, there are opportunities for people to bring things to the table. You know, we have an evening service on Sunday nights, and if you've been to our evening service, it's very kind of free form. And uh, we, we talk about the sermon. People can pray. And it, usually at some point during the, the evening, I'll say, does anyone have anything that just God's laid on their heart to share with the church that, that you, you know, have just been thinking about or something you've learned from the Scriptures and, or, or a hymn to sing? And, and people will sometimes toss something in. Uh, or, or maybe some of you have been in a growth group, a Bible study. We have Bible studies throughout the church. And, and again, that's another venue in sort of our church's culture where people can come to the Bible study and say, you know, I was wrestling with something this week, or I, I know this is kind of off topic, but I, I saw something in the Bible, or I was praying this week, and I wanted to share something. And, and so we have these venues where Christians, or maybe it's a, a Sunday school class that's more of a discussion format, where Christians gather together in the, in the body, and they're sharing things that they've learned, and they have things that they want to say. And so Paul's teaching here is that that's good. You should share these things. But look at verse 26 again. All of these must be done for what? What's the goal? The strengthening of the church. This is that word that we studied last week. It runs all throughout chapter 14. Edification, building up. That The goal of anything we do when we're together with other Christians ought to be building up other Christians. We talked about this a little bit last week, if you remember. That, that the goal is not let it go, self-expression. The, the point of me getting together with other Christians isn't I got like so much on my chest that I just want to get off my chest. I'm going to let it rip. You know, and consequences, forget about those. You deal with it. I just got to vent. I, or, or I've got things to say or I've got this huge thing the Lord showed me that I want to show you. And those things may or may not be something we share with others. But the question isn't, did I get it off my chest or did I say what I wanted to say or did I do what I want to do? The question is, am I building up other Christians when I'm with those Christians? That's the goal. So, so to be clear, Paul isn't anti-spiritual gifts. He's not like Elsa's parents who are saying, put on the gloves, stay in your room, don't use your gift. But he wasn't also saying, go be like Elsa up in the mountains. Just let it go, let it go. I said I wouldn't do that. Um, Just, you can't help it. It's a great song. But it's something in between. It's something in between where it's like, um, yes, use your gifts, but the point of the gifts isn't you feeling like you've expressed yourself. The point of the gifts is tuning in to other Christians and saying, is this helping to build them up? that a successful gathering of Christians who are sharing, that the success of it isn't, isn't measured by what did I get out of it or, or did, I, did I feel like I got to be myself. The success of that gathering is when we ask ourselves, did I actually help anyone here? Did I help further their faith? Did I strengthen them? And they're looking at me saying, did I help strengthen his faith? So that the gifts and the things we say together to each other as brothers and sisters ought to be building each other up and strengthening each other. 
It's, it's not about self-expression. It's more about love. Um, at the risk of being really corny, it's not let it go, but it's more like let them grow. You know, it's a little corny, but you get it, right? Let them grow. But that's the mentality that Paul wants us to have as we help each other in the church. Have I helped others grow in their faith? Is what I'm saying building other people up? Or is it just all about me? Um, it's a challenge preachers have. You know, you're a preacher, you're up here preaching the word, and there's always a temptation because preachers are just like every other human being. We've got our own issues and our own hang-ups. And, you know, what am I saying? Why am I preaching? Is it because I have things to get off my chest or access to grind? Or am I trying to faithfully bring you God's word so that you can grow? And so that's love constraining and guiding the use of the gifts. Okay, then we get some examples. So look back at chapter 14. You get the general principle in verse 26. And then Paul wants to take us through three examples real quick of how this looks in action in a real church. So Corinthians, I'm going to break it down for you. Super simple. This is how you should do it if you're together and you're using gifts to encourage each other. So he starts with speaking in tongues, verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at the most, or two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. So there's this speaking in tongues phenomena. Some of you are very familiar with it. Some of you have had this in your background. Some of you are going, what? I don't even know what that means. What is that? I've never heard of that. I've never heard it. But, but it's, it's this phenomenon of the Holy Spirit giving somebody a kind of unintelligible utterance that is, you know, another language that they don't know or maybe unintelligible sounds. There's a debate about that. But the point is, people don't know what you're saying. And so Paul gives some boundaries around that. And notice these limitations he puts on it. Look at verse 27. There's three, three boundaries he puts on tongue speaking. Num- the first boundary is the number of people who can do it. Two or at most three should speak. So not everybody, just a couple of you speak. And then here's the second boundary, one at a time. So this isn't, you know, some of us have been in settings where people are all speaking in tongues. You walk into a room and there's 15 people just kind of what sounds like babbling to us because we don't understand it. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. One at a time, just a few of you, not a whole bunch. Don't let this get carried away. This is not let it go time. This is for building others up. And then there has to be an interpretation. Someone must interpret. And if there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church. And if you're going to use your tongues, fine. Speak to yourself and to God. And, and, you know, many people I know who claim to speak in tongues, they say that's how they use the gift primarily, is just their own private prayer with God, and it helps them and edifies them. Um, and that seems to be what Paul is saying here. So, so, yeah, it's okay to have some tongue speaking in some settings, but let it be limited, let it be few, and, again, let it be interpreted. If it's not interpreted, be quiet. Why? Because the goal is love. The goal is building up the congregation. The goal is edifying others. And if no one knows what words are coming out of my mouth, it's not helping anybody. So, again, love is the goal, not self-expression and personal freedom. Uh, Or here's the second example. What about prophecy? Look at verses 29 to 31. He says, Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. 
For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. So same thing, just a couple prophesying, just a couple. A few people share. Everyone else, hang back, think about it. You've got to weigh it. Just because someone says God told them something doesn't mean God told them something. Right? Think about it. Weigh it. Oh, maybe. Well, that does sound like something from God's Word. Or I'm not really sure. Or that sounds a little weird to me. But, you know, weigh it. Assess it. Talk about it if you need to. Uh, but, but, but do it in an orderly way. Check this out. I, lo- I love verse 30. If you're standing up talking, something you feel like God's put on your heart, and someone else says, oh, I have something to say, the first guy has to stop and sit down so that everyone can have a turn. You know, that's just good advice, even if you don't prophesy. I don't know if you've ever been in any, you know, you get, you get people in groups, and, and you quickly find out who likes to talk and who doesn't like to talk, right? And, and there's some of us who like to talk, and there's some people who don't talk, and, uh, and some of us are like, well, there's a bunch of people here, and we're talking, so people must want to know what I have to say. So uh, I'll just start talking, and, and we just start talking. And, and that's okay. It's not that it's bad, but sometimes we just need to rein it in a little bit. You know, if, if you're a person like me who thinks you talk a lot in groups, the chances are it's actually way worse than you even imagine. <laughs> you need to rein it in a little bit. But to be sensitive to that. Sometimes it's so bad, you, you know, someone just keeps talking and talking, and you're like, are you even aware that there's other people in this group? Or, or is it just, you know, I'm just talking because I have a mouth and there's people with ears, so I'll talk. Sometimes we need to be quiet. We need to let others speak uh, in, in any kind of group setting, whether you prophesy or not. It's just a good, it's something good about this. Uh, here's a challenge for you, for those of you who are like me and are talkers. Um, uh, here's a challenge. Next time you're in a group, Bible study, evening service, wherever you are, try to go the whole time without saying anything once. See if you can do it. Or if you have to talk, do this. Ask somebody else a question to draw them out. Look around the group, figure out who hasn't said a blessed word, and ask that person, hey, Fred, hey, Wilma. You, know, you, you, haven't, you haven't talked this whole... All the old people laughed. Uh, you, you, haven't, you haven't talked this whole time. Talk a little bit. Talk a little bit. What, what, what do you think about that? You haven't said anything. Try to draw people out. Again, it's this goal of what's the point of me being with other Christians and speaking? It ought to be to edify. And sometimes it's a good discipline just to, to try to draw other people out instead of having to jump in with a comment on everything. So I know that's not exactly what Paul's talking about here, but there seems just to be some real wisdom in this. Because again, the mentality is, how can I build up others? Not how can I get out everything that I feel the need to get out? And we, and we might say, well, I can't help it. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> when the Holy Spirit's got control of me, look out. Because it's just coming out. And I can't stop it. Baloney. <laughs> it's just not true. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's just you being out of control. Look what he says. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. You, you, you're in control still. B- biblical spiritual gifts working are not losing control and going into an altered state of consciousness and behavior. Because the Spirit, if it really is the Holy Spirit, is from God. And our God, verse 33, is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. He's not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. 
and where the Spirit is really working, where the Holy Spirit is really working, the purpose of it is to bring unity and peace and to build up the other Christians, not to cause chaos by being out of control and saying, well, I couldn't help it. The Holy Spirit had control of me. It doesn't work like that. So Paul here again is saying, yes, use the gifts, but make sure you focus on what they're being used for. You know, think about the gifts of the Holy Spirit like water. Like think of the Spirit flowing like a river, right? Water can be a really wonderful thing or it can be a really destructive thing. And, and when water is in a channel and when it's being focused down canals and irrigation ditches, it's amazing what water can do to bring life and to, to bring productivity. But when water overflows its banks and floods, it destroys everything. And so it seems to me that Paul is arguing for the use of the gifts, not to damn them off, but to let them flow into the church, but let those channels of love be the thing that guide the, the working of the Spirit. So that as the Spirit is working in me in some way, it's love that's really guiding the way I express that toward you. Because I'm trying to build you up and, and water you with what the Spirit has given me, and vice versa. As opposed to the person who's just going to let it go. And the water floods the banks and everyone gets wiped out. All in the name of the Spirit of God. And yet our God is a God of peace, not disorder. Verse 39 and verse 40 really summarize all this. He says, on the one hand, verse 39, Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. Gifts are good. We're not saying stuff the gifts. It's a good word to us at South Shore Baptist Church. We probably, I would guess, they're kind of a church that would, if we're going to err on one side or the other, we'd err on that side. We'll probably err on the side of quenching the Spirit because we're, we're orderly and traditional and there's value in that too. But then here's the other side, verse 40. He says everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And that really summarizes that. And so he says, speaking in tongues, it's got to be an interpreter. Prophecy. Give each other turns. If someone else is speaking, stop. You see that word, verse 30, stop? That's actually the same Greek word as be quiet back in verse 28. So twice now he's like, be quiet, be quiet. And then we get the juicy one down in verse 34, be quiet. So there's three be quiets in this passage. Same Greek word, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. There are times to restrain yourself and pull yourself in under certain circumstances for the good of others. And then here's the last one, and this, of course, is the, the challenging one in this part of the passage. Let me just read it again. Women should be silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. And if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Wow. That's a hard passage uh, for at least three reasons. One, it's hard for us because of our cultural condition where we live in culture. That just sounds so foreign to anything we practice or believe um, in our churches and in our society. Um, it's, an, it's another, it's challenging too. I think a second reason it's challenging is because we don't know exactly what was taking place in Corinth at that time. We just don't know. It's kind of like you're listening in on one end of the telephone conversation. You're trying to figure out what, what was going on in that church. I just don't know. And so it's hard because we don't know the exact situation. It's kind of like back when we studied head coverings. You're trying to find out like what, what did that mean in that culture back then? We're not 100% sure. It's challenging. And then I think a third challenge with these verses, frankly, is that it seems, let me just say this, then I'll explain it. It seems that Paul is contradicting himself. Because earlier in the letter, 
he seemed to indicate that women were actually speaking in the churches. And he was cool with it, right? Remember back in chapter 11? Remember the head coverings passage? That was an interesting text. You can go back and listen to that online if you'd like. But look at verse 5. So he was basically arguing that, that men should pray and prophesy without something on their head and women should pray and prophesy with something on their head. But the point is, women were praying and prophesying. Verse 5. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. And so praying and prophecy, this is again, it seems to be in the context of the gathered local church. Everything from chapter 11 to 14 seems to be talking about the gathered local church. So it seems that there were women who were speaking in the local church. They were praying, they were prophesying. Okay? So, but then Paul in verse chapter 14 seems to say no speech in the church. So what's going on here? Do you see the contradiction? Were they speaking or weren't they speaking? Was he okay with it or wasn't he okay with it? And it seems to me, the way I'm I'm reading this is that whatever is happening in chapter 14 seems to be a a command to be silent in respect to a certain type of speaking that they would have known what's going on, but unfortunately we're not 100% sure what was going on. So there's hypotheses. And by the way, just look again. It's that same word, be quiet. If you're speaking in tongues and there's no interpreter, be quiet. If you're speaking a prophecy and someone else wants to speak, be quiet. Women, be quiet. And so it seems to be that there's a specific situation that's not an absolute ban on speaking, but he's responding to situational things where the principle of love needs to override the principle of personal freedom. So what was going on? Why why in the world would he tell women to be silent? And, you know, we're not sure. Here's a couple hypotheses that seem more likely. Uh, one is possible that, that you had husbands and wives. That seems to be the focus here, husbands and wives. Or perhaps in light of the verses that just came before it, you had a husband prophesying and a wife judging and assessing his prophecy. Right? And, and given the, the kind of cultural mores of the time, that would have just seemed completely out of order for a husband to say, I think this is what God's saying, and then his wife going, really? Huh. That seems flaky to me. You know, <laughs> What? You know, have you ever been with a couple that argues right in front of you? Awkward. <laughs> you know, they, they start getting into it right in front of you. You're like, okay, can we not do this right here? It's really uncomfortable, and it's really kind of discombobulating socially. So it's possible that in light of the fact that Paul has just been talking about prophecy and weighing prophecy, that that was his concern, as you had husbands and wives sort of uh, jockeying in a way that would have been, you know, not, not honoring to Christ. In, in that situation. Uh, another possibility, scholars think, is that um, it could be that, that you had married women and married men who weren't married to each other having these conversations in public, and there seems to be some historical evidence that that was considered socially taboo. So again, Paul's being sensitive to the social situation in which he lived and realizing, perhaps this is it, that that to have a situation in church where men and women are speaking to each other and people would have been scandalized by that because of the, the way that men and women are supposed to relate in that culture. You know, every culture has rules about how men and women relate. Every culture. It's different, looks different, different circumstances. And in this one, that would have been perhaps considered really inappropriate. But I think the point is, whatever kind of speech Paul was trying to limit, 
it seems to have been speech that would have caused obvious disruption and confusion and scandal to the gathering. That's why Paul uses that that language of disgrace at the end of chapter 35. It seems to be there was some line crossing so that if you're with a bunch of people, you're trying to minister to each other and care for each other, and some people are acting in ways that socially in that culture everyone would have said, well, that's really inappropriate. Well, it's just going to mess up the whole meeting because people can't get past that. I mean, how are they going to be able to edify and build up each other if there's a couple people acting in ways where everyone's like, this is so inappropriate, you know? It seems to be something like that was taking place. But again, the principle appears to be love. It's, it's the voluntary limitation of one's rights or one's self-expression to limit it, to channel it, because my goal is not to let it go, but to help you grow. So I want to focus it and channel it in that kind of way. Unless we think that uh, Paul's sort of out to lunch here, he just, he just hammers us in verses 36 to 38. He gets really tough. He says, did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. And if he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Woo! Paul gets fired up at the end. He says, whoa, who's the apostle here again? Oh, that's right, that's me. I'm the one who has God's word, and I brought it to you, not the other way around. And if you think you're all spiritual, then you'll acknowledge that what I'm saying is thus saith the Lord, that this is the Lord's command. It's just a great reminder, if nothing else, that, that God's word is our final authority. And that's really important, especially when you get into the whole issue of speaking and prophesying and tongues. And, you know, one of the dangers of, of the, that kind of movement and that kind of gifting, one of the possible pitfalls is that people can sometimes leave God's Word. And they can just get really caught up in their own impressions, their feelings. I've been around Christians who, who it seems like personal mystical experiences of God are more important than the Bible. And that, that's, you know, that's just a subtle shift that can happen. And so this is a good reminder that whatever we think is from God or whatever we think God is telling us always has to be brought back under God's Word. And not only that, but just that God's Word ought to be the primary meat and potatoes way that we, we commune with God. And if someone thinks they're spiritual and they have no time for God's Word, I'd be like, hmm, what kind of spiritual is that? This is how God speaks. This is what God has given us in His Word. And my impressions could be on or off. I mean, I could be, I could be hearing from the Lord or I could just be in a euphoric state. I don't know. I've got to be careful. But this is God's Word. This is my sure foundation. And this is where I need to come to, to know God and know His will. So it's a, it's a great little section there at the end to remind us of that. And he says, this is the Lord's will. This is what God wants for us what Paul just told us. And what Paul has taught here really does fit with what Jesus taught us, isn't it? Because what did Jesus teach us as Christians? To love one another. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. He told them, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So that the love and the concern for edification of others that Paul's talking about in chapter 14, it's really just kind of an application of what Jesus has told us and how we should relate to each other, which is love. 
And if we don't have love, we're not acting like Christians, regardless of what kinds of spiritual experiences we've had or think we've had. But love is the real mark of the Christian. And without love, we're nothing. And so this is what Jesus taught, to love each other. And this is an example of how it works out in how we might treat each other in a worship setting. But Jesus didn't just teach it. Jesus lived it. You know, Jesus let it go. That's Jesus. He let it go. But what did he let go? His glory, his authority, his rights, his, his, all the power and everything we've ascribed to him. He let all of that go so that he might save us. Jesus is the ultimate example of the self-limitation of love that says, I will lay aside my rights, my glory, my privileges, so that I can be there for that person. And Jesus, Jesus did that. He went to the cross for us. At the very heart of our gospel that we preach is the kind of self-limitation that Paul is preaching about here. So that when the church or someone in the church holds back a little bit because it would be good to hold back for your sake, they're acting very Christ-like because that's what Christ did. He limited himself on the cross. He, He took our sins. He laid aside his glory so that we could be saved. True love, real love, by the way, like at the end of Frozen, for those of you who've seen it, it's a wonderful little twist on true love at the end. The true love is not a kiss, it's a sacrifice. Check it out, it's really cool. But uh, it's a sacrifice where someone dies for another person to save them. That's true love that Christ has shown us. Can I ask, have you, have you embraced this love from God, this gift? Have you laid hold of Christ yourself? God has sent us this amazing spiritual gift Jesus is the greatest gift that God has to give. Better than tongues, better than prophecy, better than preaching, better than helping people. The greatest gift God wants to give you is Jesus. Have you laid hold of Jesus? Have you come to that place in your life where you're like, you know what, my whole life has been all about me and it's been a disaster. I need to repent of this. I need to vomit out this yucky lifestyle and this mentality that it's all about me. I need to recognize that's sin. And I need to come to God and say, God, I have lived my whole life against you. Is there any way for me to be restored? And God says, yes, I've sent Jesus. And he died for your sins and he rose again. Put your faith in him. Turn from your sins. This is God's gift to us. And it's available to everybody. That's the other great thing. You can be a total mess here this morning. A total mess. And come to Christ with simple repentance and faith. And God will take you just as you are. And save you just as you are. God doesn't save people who are all better. He saves sinners who own it. Who own their sin. Once you come to God and once you come to Christ... Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, I praise you, we praise you because you laid aside your crown, you laid aside your glory, 
you who are in very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you made yourself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And Lord, you even went further than that. Having been found in his appearance as a man, you humbled yourself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Lord, you let it all go to save us. And God, I pray that you would reach out and lay hold of us here. God, I pray if there's anyone here who is broken by their own sin, who is tired of living the selfish life, who wants to know the forgiveness and grace, Lord, I pray that they would, in a simple act of faith, lay hold of Jesus, put their faith in him. And God, I pray for those of us who know Jesus, that you would let the gospel continue to transform us, Lord. Help us, help us to live toward each other in a gospel-shaped way. Help me, help us, to lay aside our drive for self-promotion and instead be focused on the good of the other believers. Lord, help us to crucify ourselves so that we might live for you and live for the good of others. Oh God, we thank you that we've been crucified with Christ and we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. Lord, help us to live our life in this body by faith in the Son of God. And so God, use us, we pray. And help us now as we come to communion, as we meditate through communion on this great sacrifice that defines our identity and our reality as Christians. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.